Well, good morning, Southwinds. So good to see you today. I want to invite you to get your Bibles out or turn them on. And we are at week two of our new series, Rediscovering Church, A People, Not a Place. And you know, in life, it is vital at different points to take a step back and ask the question, why? Why do I believe what I believe? Why am I doing what I do? You know, why always determines the how and the when and the where and how long. And so really the question for us is why the church? Why the church? If you, you look at the Bible's storyline, you will see that it all begins with God creating the universe. Have you ever asked the question, why did God create? Hebrews 2.10 says, God is the one who made all things and all things are for his glory God wanted to have many sons share his glory. So the Bible says God created the universe not because he was lonely, but because he's love and he wanted to share his love and he wanted to share his glory. You know, God has no needs. He is eternally and perfectly self-sufficient, but because he is love, he wanted a family to love. He wanted to share his glory. Ephesians chapter one, verses four and five says this, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. So the entire reason that everything exists is that God wanted to share his love. God wanted to display his glory, and he chose to do that through a family. And it's the only family that will last forever, and Jesus called it the church. If you're here last week, you'll remember we saw that in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus did not say, I'll build an empire, or I'll build a nation, or I'm gonna build a multinational corporation. Jesus said, I will build my church. He said, I will build my church and all the powers of hell and death will not defeat it. Do you know that the most successful movement of all time is the church? Today across our world, there are two and a half billion people who name the name of Christ. And there's no other group or organization or even nation that comes even anywhere close. Nothing on planet Earth is as large as Jesus' church. And Jesus says, nothing is gonna stop my church. Now, it's kind of an interesting thing. In America, there are a lot of people, maybe even some of you at one time or another, who have said something like this. You know, I love Jesus, but I don't need the church. I wanna ask you a question think about how you would answer this. You don't have to say out loud. Here's the question. Is it possible to be a good Christian without attending and getting involved with and committing yourself to a church? That was an actual survey question not too long ago. 81% of Americans answered yes. But the New Testament emphatically says no. No. It's actually not possible Jesus says the church is my body. Jesus says the church is my bride. I wanna encourage you, cross this room right now, turn to someone who's right by you, and I want you to say to them, you know, I like you, but I can't stand your body. 
Or if their wife is right there, you, yeah, don't do that either. Um, you can't love Jesus without loving his body, loving his bride, loving his family. In Ephesians 5.25, Paul says, Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. So it, it makes no sense to say you love Jesus and you don't care about his church. Loving Jesus means you love what he loves. Caring for Jesus means you care for what he cares about. See, what we're, we're talking about in this series, and particularly today, it, it runs against so many of our culture's in, individualistic impulses. We're talking about belonging to God's family. We're gonna be studying Ephesians chapter two, verses 11 through 22, and if you're not there yet, I encourage you to get there. Many New Testament scholars say that this passage is the most significant passage in the New Testament on what it means to be the church. And we're talking all through this series about how the church is a people, not a place. And in the Bible, the word that is used for church literally means the called out ones. Whenever the Bible uses this word, the Greek word ekklesia, it is always referring to people, people who've been adopted by God, which means that church is just another word for the family of God. And that means that a church is souls, it's not structures. That, that means the church is community, not construction. It's God's community. Ephesians um, is actually one of my personal favorite books all in all the Bible, and it's a letter written by Paul. And if you study it, maybe you've noticed this, its main focus is the church. Ephesians, if you read across its six chapters, tells us so very much about the church. Before this passage we're gonna study today, the first chapter and a half talks about how individual people come into a relationship with God, how God saves individuals. There's so many amazing truths in, in those verses, but the church isn't actually mentioned until we get to this passage we're looking at today. And what you'll see in the flow of Paul's thought as you keep reading in Ephesians is that God saves us as individuals, but he saves us to community. God saves us in order that we might belong to his family. Uh, in Ephesians chapter three, verse 10, uh, listen to this. Paul says, it, it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What does that mean? We don't have time to get, dig into it, but it at least tells us there's a whole lot going on more than meets the eye. We're not just attending a meeting. Somehow, somehow the church is proclaiming God's manifold wisdom in some kind of cosmic sense. In Ephesians 3.21, Paul says that it is uh, through the church that God would be glorified. That is his prayer, that God wants to receive glory in the church. You go to Ephesians 4, and Paul writes all of these, these beautiful truths about how the church is the body of Christ. And in Ephesians 5, he describes the church as Jesus' bride. I mean, it's very clear that God intends amazing things for the church. In our text today, we're gonna see that Paul tells us we are citizens of a kingdom and that we are members of a family and that we are like stones in a temple. John Stott, he says that the church lies at the very center of the eternal purposes of God. 
And that means, among other things, that the church is not just a divine afterthought or, or some random accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. And that means, and I hope you see it, and if you don't see it yet, I hope you will by the end of today, that means that it is a great privilege to belong to God's church. It's a great privilege to belong to God's church. You see, sometimes we, we think of our faith as just about us, but it's so much more than that. God saved you and he desired to save you and he made, he, 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 he made that happen in your life, but he didn't just do it just for you and then you can go on perpetuating all of your loneliness. He saved you so that he could make you part of a church and he could build up his church and he could use us all together calling out of, of the world these people, all these people for his own glory. This, this passage today is really about our, our corporate identity. If you read the book of Ephesians and, and pay attention to details, one of the things you'll see quite often is this prepositional phrase, in Christ, in Christ, over and over again. You know, identity, it may be the biggest question that people have in our day, but it's actually been a question all since creation. People are always asking, have always asked, who am I? Someone said in the 20th century, uh, the most common title of, of a poem written by teenagers was, who am I? See, if we're Christ followers, we don't have to go looking for an identity. We already have one. And it is not in our net worth. It is, it is not in our physical appearance. It is not in our possession. It's not certainly in how many followers we have or don't have. We are in Jesus Christ. And in this passage is showing us that we are also in Jesus' people. So what does it mean? What does it mean to belong to God's family? I want you to see how Paul outlines it in these verses. And if you're looked already at the first couple of verses, you may have noticed that a key word in those verses is the word remember. Paul begins by calling his readers to remember. And this is what he wants us to remember. He wants us to remember who we used to be, where we came from. He wants us to remember what Christ has done, and then he wants us to remember who we are today because of what Christ has done, and that's where we're headed. And here's what I am praying and hoping happens as we work through Paul's word. I am praying and hoping that your hearts will just be stirred up with great gratitude as you think, we think, about who we used to be, but by grace, who we are now, that we now have a family to belong to. We, we, we learn what it means to belong to God's family. The more we know, the more we can begin to better live out of the identity God has given us. So here's the first thing we're to remember. Remember who we were. Key word there is separation. Look at verses 11 and 12. Therefore, Paul writes, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
So as Paul begins to talk to the Ephesians, and they're, they're all Gentiles, and that is really the same uh, situation for almost all of us today. He's focusing on where they were before they met Jesus, and he says they were far from God. Notice the words he uses. He says separated. So we didn't know Christ. And as a result, we were alienated, Paul says. And as a result of that, we had no hope because we were without God. Now, Paul, maybe you notice, mentions circumcision, which today seems kind of strange to us. Why would you bring that topic up? But if you've read the Old Testament, you know this was a sign that the Jewish people were God's people. But Paul, uh, though he was proud of his heritage, he begins by downplaying the significance of this by saying that this was made in the flesh by hands. And what he's really pointing out is this. This circumcision, this external sign, it existed in the older order of Judaism with all of its external features. And Paul says, what matters now is a new creation. That's the language he uses in Galatians 6.15. And Paul is, he's beginning to build his argument to these Gentile believers that they are not second-class citizens, that they are actually full and privileged members of God's people. But for them to see that, he wants them to remember who they used to be. And so he says again in verse 12, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. Do you understand that there's nothing worse than being separated from Christ? And there is nothing greater than being united to Christ But at one time, all of us, we were all separated. And the Bible teaches very clearly that all of us are by nature sinners. And because of that sin, we are separated. We are alienated from God. Remember that, Paul says. Remember what you used to be. Remember also, he said, that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. He's highlighting to these people that they were not God's people that they did not know about the God who had revealed himself to his chosen people, the God who had made so many wonderful promises to his people in what we call the the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Because of that separation, because of who we used to be, Paul says we had no hope without God in this world. We were hopeless. We were godless, he says. We were Christless. We were promiseless. That was our tragic position, and Paul wants us to remember that. Why? Well, it's because he's about to go through the greatest before, after, ever. It's very similar to what he does earlier in chapter two, verse four. You can look it up there. Um, He talks about moving from death to life, but here's another one. He says, this is who you were, but something has happened, and now there is a new you. Now, we like this. Like we, We like before and after stories, right? I mean, we, 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 we like to see those pictures. One side is before, other side is after. And the reason I know we like it is that people use this all the time to market products, right? I mean, it's just like, just take a pill and you can have some hair. Just eat at Subway, you'll lose weight. Just take another pill and you'll, you'll grow muscles, you know? Um, just get plastic surgery and you can, well, whatever it is you're trying to do. Um, you, you look at all these ads, these commercials, these pictures, and you're thinking to yourself, that could be me. I could have a mullet. I could grow muscles, you know? Now, Paul's not talking about a marketing scheme. 
He says, because of what Jesus has done, that's not who we are anymore. We are not Christless. We, are, we have Christ. We're not hopeless. We have hope, amen? Because we've been transformed. Now, how does that happen? Well, that's our second thing. Look at verses 13 to 18, and, and this is remember what Christ has done. The word we want to use here is reconciliation. Here's what Paul writes, beginning in verse 13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us, us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, these verses are really the the pivot point, and we see it especially in the first two words in verse 13. But now, but now. See, if you know Jesus, there is a but now in your story. That's who you used to be. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. I don't know if you know this, but there are some pastors and there are some authors of books who don't like to emphasize the blood. Maybe you've heard this, read this, listened to this. Uh, People sometimes say the blood's primitive. Some people say, yeah, blood's just gross. So we don't wanna talk about it. Sometimes you you talk about Jesus' blood, you get labeled things like fundamentalist. Uh, many people, they just don't, don't like the Bible's blood language. They, they think maybe the cross is, is overemphasized or even maybe irrelevant. Here's what, what two writers said. We believe that the popular fascination with and commitment to penal substitutionary atonement has had ill effects in the life of the church and in the United States and has little to offer the global church and mission by way of understanding or embodying the message of Jesus Christ. Wrong. That's wrong. That's actually a bunch of scubala, to use Paul's language, and if you don't know that Greek word, don't ask your mama, okay? But it's in the Bible. Paul uses it, okay? The cross, friends, the cross is all we have to offer the world. I mean, through the cross of Jesus Christ, we have access to God. We have peace with God. We have eternal life. We have a new community. There is no cross without the blood, and there is no church without the blood. It is through Jesus and what Jesus has done, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. It is through him that we are what we are now, that we have this new identity. Jesus has done so many things. If you go back and read these verses, there's all these action words here. Look at all the things Jesus did. He made, he's broken down, he's abolished, he's created, he's reconciled. What a savior we have. What a savior. Paul says in verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Our peace is a person 
You know, all through Ephesians, as I mentioned earlier, Paul talks about how we are in Christ. Theologians call this our our union with Christ. It is at the heart of the Christian faith, our union with Christ. And he says here, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He himself is our peace. And I am praying today that you know this peace. And if you don't, I'm praying that you find it very soon, very soon. As the early church father, Augustine, famously wrote, he said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And I am pretty sure that some of us are here and we're restless. Some of us are here and we have been searching for something. We don't know what. It always seems to be just beyond our reach. It's always just around another corner. We achieve a goal and it's not that. It must be something else. And we keep looking and we keep searching. We're restless. We have no peace. I'm telling you today, Jesus is your peace. You will find peace only in Jesus Jesus, uh, because he gives us this peace, it, it has consequences for our relationships. He's made us one. Look again at verses 14 through 17. Paul writes, Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's, he's using this imagery that was very familiar to them. Then the imagery of the, of the temple and the wall of separation, this enormous wall that divided, that separated Jew and Gentile. I mean, today it's kind of hard for us to really wrap our minds around how intense this rivalry and division really was. But Jesus, Paul says, what Jesus has done is he destroyed the wall. He tore it down. And Paul is reminding us that Jesus brings unity where there could be no unity before. And isn't that an important word for us today? I mean, everywhere we look across our culture, in so many ways, there's disunity. I mean, like, I mean, how? How could I be a brother with a Dodgers fan? I mean, what fellowship has light with darkness? You know, and, and maybe, you know, that's just the cross of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, how in the world... Could 49ers fans and Raiders fans be in the same church? And some of you are like, well, there are no Raiders fans that are Christians. Um, there, are, there are a few. There are a few. And our world is just filled with rivalries and divisions, Republicans and Democrats, PC and Mac, Pepsi and Coke, on and on. But in Jesus Christ, Paul says, in him, we are finally one. We are one. We are family Paul says in Galatians 3, 28, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. In Colossians 3, 11, he says here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. That isn't the way our world is today, right? And it wasn't the way the world was back then when Paul wrote Rodney Stark is a, a prominent sociologist, written a lot of books on the, the early years of Christianity. He describes in his writing how the Romans built um, all of these huge cities and then they brought all of these people together from all of these different cultures. And the result was all kinds of ethnic strife. Some of you have heard the prayer uh, that Jewish men in Jesus' day prayed every morning. It, it goes like this, God... I thank you 
that I am not a woman or a slave or a Gentile. It's fascinating to read the book of Acts, which is the the story of the birth and the the early growth of the church of Jesus Christ. And you get to Acts chapter 16, and Paul is going into the city, the city of Philippi. He's going there to preach the gospel and to plant a church. And, And as he does this, we read that the very first three people who come to faith in Jesus are a woman named Lydia, a slave girl, and a Roman jailer. Think about that. The first four people in Paul's church plant, church start, are Paul a Jew, a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Because in Christ, we have peace. And that peace spills over into relationship. That that peace tears down walls. Jesus has destroyed the wall. He has made us a family. He has made us the church. He's reconciled us, Paul says, uh, both to God in this union with one another, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. In other words, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament he, he fulfilled all the types and all of the shadows that were wrapped up in the, the system that God had set up with his, his people. And Jesus has created in himself, Paul says, I love this, he's created in himself one new man. In other words, we are a new humanity, a whole new people, something utterly different and new, the church. This passage also has some amazing teaching for us today about racism, this evil that continues to plague our world. And you know, our culture today rightly believes that racism is a terrible thing. The Bible from beginning to end is always taught that it always said racism is a terrible thing. We are all created in the image of God, all human beings without exception. That's Genesis one, in the image of God. And therefore, that means we're all equal in status before God. And that means therefore racism is sin. Racism is evil. But have you noticed even though everybody says it's evil, the, the secular way of addressing racism is just not working. And here's the reason why. Secular culture goes after the mind. It says that we'll, we're gonna scold and shame people. We're gonna educate people and educate the racism out of them, educate them until the racism is gone. But it hasn't worked and it won't work Because the problem is not in the mind, the problem is in the heart. See, our problem is not that we're stupid, our problem is that we're sinners. And that's what needs to happen. We need heart change, and that's what the gospel does. And that's what the church is about, a a new people, a new humanity. You know, if you read, Paul, what he's saying here, it's not, he's not saying that the Gentiles have been transformed into Jews and the, the Jews have been transformed into Gentiles. He says instead that God has in Christ created a, a new man, a new humanity, a, a new community. And it's a beautiful thing. Another early church father, John Chrysostom, uh, he said this, it is as though one took a statue of silver and a statue of lead, put them into a forge, and out came a statue of gold, one new man. And you know, in this day where there is so much division and so much 
tribalism. It's so beautiful to read this and to think about what God has done and to know only God could do this through his son, Jesus Christ, that Jesus has brought us the reconciliation that we desperately need first between us and God, but then between us and other people. Paul says that Jesus has come, this is verse 16, and he's preached peace. He's reconciled us. That's what the cross has achieved. And, and Jesus announces that, that, that peace. He preaches that peace. He preached peace in his life and he preached peace in his death and in his resurrection. And now he preaches it through us, his people. Christ is proclaiming peace through his people And whenever we live out of the identity that God has given us as part of his family, and we teach what the Bible teaches, Christ proclaims peace through us, his people. We preach peace. Paul says that Jesus preached it to those who are far off, that's the Gentiles, to those who are near. He speaks of the Jews, and and because of this, he's brought everyone together, and we have this new identity as Christians. In verse 18, Paul says we, we both have access now to God, and notice he says, by the Spirit, through Jesus Christ. And just kind of as a little uh, extra free thing here, we have some important teaching on prayer in this verse, and it starts with access. Access. We, we have access, Paul says, and we all understand this concept. Sometimes we're trying to, to get access to a person and we can't, so we say they are inaccessible. Um, In New Testament times, this Greek word here was used to speak of approaching a a person of rank and importance, like a monarch. Paul says we have access to God. That means we don't need an appointment. It, It means you don't need like a special wristband to get in. You know, there is no protocol. You have access to God anytime, anywhere because of what Jesus has done access. So use that access and pray. Notice also there is a humility in this prayer. The only reason we have access is Jesus. It's not us, not how good you are, not how many good deeds you have done. That doesn't get you access. You don't deserve access, but Jesus earned it, and he gives it to you as a free gift There's not only humility in prayer here, there is a simplicity to prayer. We have access to the Father. Prayer is just basically defined, it's talking to the Father. And we do have access to him. Uh, Tim Keller put it so well. He said, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is the child of the king. And we have that kind of access anytime You want to call on God. He is there. He is available. There's also uh, not only simplicity, but there is intimacy of prayer. And this this intimacy comes through the Spirit. The, The Spirit focuses us in prayer. And I want you to notice in this verse something very important. Prayer, Paul shows us here, is a Trinitarian experience. Do you see it? It is to the Father, through the Son, By the Spirit. Sometimes people kind of get wrapped around the axle, like, well, do I start a prayer uh, by this way? And I have to always say it to to the Father, and I have to always end my prayer in Jesus' name, or it doesn't really count. 
And the Bible gives us some patterns and we can follow those patterns, but they're never rigid and the Bible itself doesn't follow one single pattern. And you should always know when you're talking to the Father, you're talking to the Son and when you're talking to the Son, you're talking to the Spirit because our God is one. He's three in one. And it's just an amazing thing to think that we get to talk to him. We get to pray to him, this intimacy in prayer. But don't miss one more thing. In Ephesians 2, there's not only this humility of prayer and simplicity of prayer and intimacy of prayer, there's also community in prayer because we both, and that's all of us, have access to God by the Spirit through the Son. So prayer is something we should do, not just uh, in our private prayer closet as Jesus talks about. We should pray with other people because he is our Father and we are his people. We belong to his family. So Paul says, remember uh, who you used to be. Remember who Christ has done. And then third, remember what you have now become. Remember who we are now. And the word for this is identification. Verses 19 through 22, it says this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit What Paul is saying is that we who are in Christ, we now belong to this new humanity, this new community. Uh, You you notice this transition. And so out of that, here's what I want you to know. I want you to think about. Have you ever gone somewhere and when you get there, you just feel like you don't belong? I think we've all experienced that, and that can happen, you know. Even like you're a middle-aged adult, you know, sometimes you feel that way. You think, man, I'm Like I'm back in middle school. I just don't, I feel out of place here. I don't belong. Here's the thing you need to remember and never forget. In Christ, you do belong. We belong because this is who God has made us. This is who we are now. And this is so important to understand. You know, the church, the church is holding out to the world the thing that the world desperately is longing for and that is to belong and our God is a relational God and he has created us for relationships and in him as his people we have something that cannot be found anywhere else we can belong you know we we see this kind of human desire that's everywhere in so many different ways just one example have you ever noticed all of the popular tv shows that focus on community um, in, in the 1980s, it was Cheers, right? Bunch of people sitting around a bar, and we all, like so many years later, we all know the song, right? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, right? And in the 90s, it was Friends. There's these people living together in Manhattan, you know, committing a bunch of sins. Um, and... Um, <laughs> And then in the 2000s, it was Lost, which is a show largely about relationships, albeit with dead people. But it was about relationships, about people, right? And even now, we we literally have a show called Community. And, And this is just going to keep going on forever and ever because this is what people are interested in. That's why social media is a thing. We all long to belong. 
And see, God has provided the great solution to our longing in the people of God. By grace, we have a people to whom we belong. You belong. Now, you need, once you're in that family, to work at maintaining that intimacy, but Jesus has created it. We can't create it. Jesus did, but we have to maintain it. And, and that's what Paul, you know, if you keep reading in Ephesians, he's gonna go on to talk about in Ephesians 4, uh, how we live together in unity. And so Paul, in these verses, um, with all of this in mind, uh, I wanna close with these three things. He, he gives us three word pictures that should help us embrace our corporate identity and help us walk in that identity. And the first picture is that we are citizens of God's kingdom. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now, some people in church, they act like aliens or strangers. They're kind of strange. But you're not a stranger, not in the church. You're, you're not an alien. If you're in Christ, you are fellow citizens with the saints. We're no longer refugees. We have citizenship Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, we don't walk around with a passport. We have a birth certificate. We belong. I'm in this family. I'm not a second-class citizen. So if you're a Christian, you're, you're, you're not in someone else's territory. You're a full member of the kingdom. And again, this was an important concept. Paul's writing in a day when Roman citizenship was really prized. To be able to say, I'm a Roman citizen, it brought great privilege. And, and maybe we can relate to some of that even in our day. I mean, don't you feel it when the president says, my fellow Americans? It's a great blessing, we believe, to be part of this nation. But there's nothing, nothing like being a citizen of God's kingdom I mean, maybe you imagine Jesus saying, my fellow citizens of God's kingdom. That's who we are. We're not strangers in some foreign country. I mean, if you've ever traveled internationally, you know this. You know, you go to another country, you always kind of feel a little vulnerable, right? It doesn't seem as safe. You always wanna make sure you have your passport. You could be vulnerable without it, but we are always safe in God's kingdom, one way we can think of our church, Southwind's church, is that we are part of this huge, incredible kingdom, and we're kind of like an embassy, like a, a little outpost of the kingdom of God, and we have the privilege of showing to the world around us what the kingdom of God is like, what our king is like, because we are citizens of his kingdom. Paul then goes on, secondly, to say that we are members of God's family, that we are actually family, your citizens, he says, and uh, you're members of the household of God. See, you, you could imagine back then uh, that scene of a Jew and a Gentile coming together in a kingdom, but to be a family, that was something stunning. How could that be? Well, we have the same father. Paul tells us that we are adopted children of the father. You know, some of you, you have adopted children, brought them into your family. Some of you, you are adopted children. You have experienced the grace of someone taking you into their family. They didn't have to. They chose you. They, they chose to do that, and that's what God has done as well. God's adoption puts you into a family 
And that means when you become a follower of Christ, you not only get a new status, you get a new father, you get new brothers and sisters. John Stott also says that brothers and sisters are the most common words for Christians in the New Testament. It's kind of like describing the essence of what it means to be a Christian, brothers and sisters. And, you know, a lot of times we, we call each other brother and sister, um, you know, in the church. Uh, a lot of times when we forgot someone's name, right? Um, I mean, I kind of do that for a living um, sometimes. Uh, how you doing, brother? <laughs> but... Um, you know, back when I was in college, some of you knew this, the, when the girl didn't want to go out with a guy, she would, she would always say, like, I like you like a brother. It's kind of supposed to be a nice way to let the guy down. But, but for us, it is a privilege. It is a great joy. And it is a miracle that people, I mean, just look around this room, even in one room that so many different people, all of us from different backgrounds and, and different perspectives and all kinds of differences, wild differences, but in Christ Jesus, we're family. We're brothers and sisters. So we're citizens of the kingdom and we're members of the family. And third, we are stones in God's temple. Now, this was a metaphor that's very vivid and it would have been additionally vivid to the original audience because in Ephesus they had this massive, massive temple to their, their goddess. Of course, um, in Judaism there was the temple in Jerusalem. And Paul says now there is this new temple that's been created in the church and he says this when he says that you are members of the household that God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so he's telling us here that as this temple, we are part of it, the foundation of the temple is God's word. I think that's what Paul means when he speaks of the apostles and the prophets. I think that shouldn't surprise us because the church stands or falls based on its faithfulness to God's word. On its faithfulness to God's word he says that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. That means he is the one from whom everything else moves out. He's the one who gives alignment to the building. And then Paul adds to this metaphor something dynamic when he says the whole structure being joined together, it grows. So he uses this kind of organic idea. It grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So he likens us to stones. And Jesus, he says, not only gives alignment and stability, but he's also the source of growth and the source of power to the church. And this is why I started last week by talking about how we are Jesus people because you remove Jesus, there's no church. We're about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He's the cornerstone to the church. He makes the church possible. He's the one who makes the church able to grow and to be fruitful. And Paul says, you, you Gentiles have been added to this. In him, you also, you who once were far off, you also now have been built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so he concludes by reminding us that the purpose of the temple in the Old Testament is the same purpose of the church now, only greater, and that is to be a dwelling place with God. It's just this is amazing, amazing picture that, that depicts for us this unbelievable reality that as the people of God, we enjoy this incredible blessing of having God dwell 
with us. God dwells within us individually, but he also, Paul is telling us, dwells among us corporately. And it is only through him and in him, in Jesus Christ, that we we have this privilege, that we can be part of this temple, this, this people that God is assembling and building and growing from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And here's what I want you to see. Uh, all of this together, what this passage should do for us in our minds first and moving out to our hearts, it should elevate for us our concept of the church, how we think of the church. If you walked in this room in any way thinking of the church as kind of an optional add-on to your spiritual life, I hope you don't think that anymore. I hope that you see what a privilege it is for us to be part of God's family. We belong to God's family. And if you have found yourself at different times uh, too easily criticizing the church, and there will always be things to criticize. And by the way, um, in case you're wondering why there will always be things to criticize in the church, you should just look in the mirror and you'll have your answer. The church can be criticized because we are the church, right? And as we like to say around here, no perfect people are allowed because none of us is perfect anyway. And so it's so easy for us to kind of lower our view of the church and always find ourselves critiquing and criticizing the church. Be so very careful when you do that. See, God has given us this place, this privilege to be part of something amazing he is doing. Christ came and Christ lived and Christ died and Christ rose again from the dead to create a people for himself. Not isolated individuals who believe in him, but a people for himself and that is what we are. I hope that as we continue to study what it means to be the church, that you will see in new ways, fresh ways, even greater ways, what an amazing thing it is that we get to be part of God's family. If you are in Christ, you are in his people, you belong to God's family. And that is a great, great blessing. Amen? Amen. This is God's word for us today, Southwinds. Will you receive it? Will you take it in? Will you feed on it? And will you live it out in your life? This is what God is calling us, his people, to do today. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Father, we thank you and we bless you for your word today. And Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would write it on our hearts and you would help us, empower us to live out of this identity, this, this union that we have with Jesus and, and this fellowship that we have with one another. Lord, may, may we never cease to praise you for all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. God, you are good. You are so good and you have, you have created something very good in your church, your people, your family. May we love your church. Lord, may we serve in your church. 
May we tell others about your church and, and may we glorify Jesus in all that we do as your people, as your family. Lord, as we prepare to receive our offering this morning, may we give with grateful hearts, grateful for your church, grateful for the salvation you have granted to us, grateful for the blessings, Lord, that, that we have received from you every day of our lives. You, you have blessed us so richly. And may we give in response. Lord, we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, the name above every name, that strong name, that beautiful name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,